Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The First 2,000 Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Let's see now. Mike, where are you? Want to tell about our... Oh, there you are. Um, tell us a little bit about this picture, will you? I'm going to pass it around. This is, uh, this is very well conceived. And uh, if you'll pass it around here, then all up and down here, then, then down through the center, and then up here, and we'll let the rest of you see it on Tuesday. Appreciate that very much. Yes? Um, yeah, based upon the, um, the dimensions indicated in the scripture for the ark, the height, the breadth, the length, and then it says in the um, Book of Mormon that the barges were miniatures of this that the Jaredites used. So you put it all together and this is what he came up with. This is the same kind of a structure that, um, that the artist's conception is very similar to this after seeing the structure that's up on Mount Ararat. Uh, th that conception is similar to this. And Tuesday, everything else being equal, uh, I'm going to have an excellent film for you on the flood, and I think you'll en really enjoy it. Okay. Cubit is 18 inches. Actually, they had it a different lengths, 21 inches, 24 inches. So for my measurements, I always take the minimum of 18. Uh, no cubit was any less than 18. Yes, they, they often use it from the elbow to the tips of the finger, and that, of course, depended upon each king who was the, uh, the cubit measurement. So um, I took the very shortest cubit that we have any word of so that we would be sure and have the minimum. Uh, nobody could say we were exaggerating. And you see, this ship turned out to be about as large. Um, it has a displacement of about 50,000 tons, and that's a very big ship. And now that we understand a lot about genetics and DNA, which we formerly didn't understand, and found out that you could take two animals and you have in them potentially uh, a host of species uh, that belong to that cat family, for example, or that horse family. You can actually get them so far apart that they can't interbreed anymore as a species. And they'll all come out of those same two parents in a given number of generations. DNA is, is one of the most fascinating studies of genetics that uh, uh, we've broken into in recent years. So. Um, we're moving now into the flood epic, which is denied by many people, including some LDS scientists. They just can't believe that it could have occurred. And uh, we have the famous Apostle Peter saying to the people, can you believe it? In the latter days, they won't even believe in the flood anymore. Can you imagine that? <sighs> All drawing their breath. Josephus said in his day, anybody could go up and see the ark. And he said it was on Mount Ararat. And when Marco Polo came along, he said it was on Mount Ararat. And people started stumbling into it uh, every few years if they had the wherewithal to climb it, They'd get up on the top of the mountain. So we'll be telling you a little bit about that here in the not-too-distant future. And if Dr. Crawford comes to see me, 
which he hopes he can do in the next month or so. I'll have him speak to the class. Right, well, through the ice, these timbers are about 140 feet long, each timber. There are no trees for hundreds of miles around this place. And what, what is a structure of those dimensions with all these rooms in it doing up there 13,500 feet above sea level? I mean, that's 1,500 feet above Timp. I mean, you don't go up there for just a weekend lodging, you know. So um, when I introduced Dr. Crawford and his friends to President Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, he said to them, well, don't be surprised if it is the ark. But nobody knows for sure. We just know there's a tremendous structure up there encased in ice that hasn't been seen out of the ice since about 1938. We have one good hot year. You see, the, the water all melts away, then you get to see it. So these scientists wanted permission to go up and melt the ice so it could be seen. And the Russians chased them off because that mountain looks right down on Russia, right across the valley. Uh, so uh, everything in due time. If it did turn out to be the Ark, it would, uh, it would really shatter a lot of uh, theories. Number one, it would demonstrate that the church was right and basic scholars of the Bible were right in assuming that the flood was universal, not just some canyon or valley and uh, would show that the, the ship could have been that high, 13,500 feet, means that there would have had to have been a universal flood to put it up that high. And it would, might restore confidence in some of the cynics and those that have little faith and have difficulty being able to believe the Lord when he says, I did it. And Noah says, and I saw it. Believe me, it was for real. But uh, Peter says, believe it or not, in the last days they will deny. The great flood even. And that seemed so stupid back in those days, they couldn't think that we would be that stupid. Just, just couldn't imagine it. But we are. I'm speaking of our generation. And the intellectual world uh, ridicules the flood as being an impossibility. Now I want to share with you some thoughts and some ideas that will give you an appreciation of how critical our own time is. Because when Enoch saw his great revelation of the latter days, he only saw what John saw, and Ezekiel saw, and Zechariah saw, and Noah, uh, Adam had seen it before him. Uh, the prophet Lehi was allowed to see it, then his son Nephi asked to be allowed to see it and was able to see it. And they saw that we had a tremendous opportunity, but so that we wouldn't be prejudiced, none of them told us how it was going to turn out, but they saw how it was going to turn out. So you and I are at the crossroads. We're exactly like the people of Nineveh. We have the prophets telling that if we go one way, we will avoid what definitely is in the computer if we keep going the way we're going. Now the Lord set up the Constitution specifically so that a city of Enoch society could exist in it. It would be sufficiently free of any economic control from a central source so that you could set up a, a city of Enoch society without interference from the outside. That is almost gone. That possibility has almost disappeared from our society. We are so far off the foundations of our original constitution that the possibility of saving it now is really gosmer and thread-like. And you can't awaken the people for a very simple reason. Why do you think it's difficult to get people concerned about the fact that freedom as the Founding Fathers envisioned it is, has almost disappeared? Unle unless what? They'll, assume, they'll take the responsibility if something exists, but if it doesn't exist, it's difficult for them to face up to it. What is that? 
What's the little thing that triggers people into going forward? If they're doing well and prospering, they just couldn't care less. And one of the most dramatic examples of it is occurring this week as a big fight is going on in Congress concerning whether or not our cities and states should be federalized. Now, the reason that I wanted to share this with you is because the Lord said when the Constitution was set up, if it's more or less than this, it's bad. In other words, I won't be able to do my work. If you get more or less than this, it will be bad. Now, what he meant by this was uh, the Founding Fathers. I'm just going over Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention now. And Madison's notes say we must avoid on anarchy where there's no government and avoid this terrible oppression of human beings where there's too much government. We must somehow find this spot. And they did find it. And the Lord said, now this will make you the most prosperous nation on earth. You'll be the most powerful and the freest if you just don't lose the formula. And one of the very first people to start diminishing the formula was Alexander Hamilton, then Thomas Jefferson, and they knew what they were doing, but it was for such a good cause. Now, that's actually how we began to disintegrate and go toward collectivism. Uh, we had a chance to buy the whole center of the United States for $15 million from the French. And so they came to, to Jefferson and said, get it, buy it. We well, said, I don't have the authority. Uh, nobody's going to object. It's a bargain. Grab it. Well, he said, we really ought to have an amendment, you know. I ought to be authorized to do it. I shouldn't just do it, uh, you know. Uh, oh, they said, go on, grab it. He did, and it was one of the most popular things he did, and he always felt badly about it. And it was afterwards used as a precedent for what, what is called the strong president to do things he's not authorized to do. Not that he couldn't be authorized, but the Constitution provided for a, ma a machine to go through to do it. Uh, Alexander Hamilton came along, and the Constitution said, Article 1, Section 8, that monetary matters should be kept under control of the Congress, and that they would establish the minting of the money and what the value of it would be. Hamilton came along, and he said, we ought to let the private banks do that. And we've had that fight going on ever since. When Joseph Smith was, a pro was running for president, he said, let me tell you what's going to happen. If you don't get this monetary thing back in the hands of the people's representatives with their bank, et cetera, et cetera, there's going to be a real difficulty. And the money will be debauched, and you won't know whether you've got any savings or not because it will be just uh, paper money that they could announce as valueless at any time. He said, you ought to have a dollar's worth of metal back of every piece of paper that's circulating. Anyway, he gave us some good counsel. Well, of course, this is all out the window. This is really passe. And we've got a whole new approach. We've got paper gold now. You may not have heard that. Try to give it to your girlfriend for a, an engagement ring. See how she buys it. But anyway, paper gold now, that's the big thing. All these principles have been so badly scrambled that it has left our people in confusion. So back in 1960, President McKay tried to get all the MIAs to study these issues, and it split wards wide open. Our people were so unprepared to talk about issues on, on the basis of principle that they would begin pointing fingers and quarreling, and it began to split the wards. So by 1966, President McKay issued this statement to the priesthood, and I just want you to hear it. The church out of respect for the rights of all its members to have their various views and loyalties, must maintain the strictest possible neutrality. We'd waited too long. And then he said, we wish all of our citizens, not just members of the church, 
We wish all of our citizens throughout the land were participating in some type of organized self-education in order that they could better appreciate what is happening and know what they can do about it. Now, those of us that had the, the great pleasure of knowing President McKay well and being able to talk to him on occasion, we knew his feelings. He said, the adversary is closing in now very fast. And right at the time when our people are getting sufficiently mature to maybe set up little islands, little Zion cities, the whole frame of reference provided by the Constitution is being to, beginning to close in on us so that it would be illegal to do what the Lord said to do for prosperity and happiness. They're moving in very fast now with very strong controls so that everything that you do must be in their terms and under their, uh, under their program, and they would not tolerate what the Lord said we eventually must do. So he said, our only hope is to go back into an educational program and reverse the, the course. So it was a puzzle to a lot of us just how we should do that, and it's taken us a long time to get at it. But we're now at it. And um, we started, some of you have been with me before, and you know the program we've been following. About a year ago, we set up a Freeman Institute right off campus. And I took all my books and all my papers that I'd collected for 30-odd years, put them there where the students could have access to them. And we told both sides. There's the communist side, the socialist side, the liberal side, and the constitutional conservative side. Conservative means conservation, conserving freedom. That's what conservation means. That's what it's supposed to mean conserving resources, conserving the best. Doesn't mean don't solve problems. That's a stick in the mud, uh, so forth. But to conserve your freedom and at the same time solve the problems. So each week, as the Freeman Report comes out now, we'll take a major issue every week, and if you'll read it like the sports page, you'll really come up with something. You know how people amaze me, uh, usually because they don't have uh, sufficient background on, on um, these vital issues. They scan them without ever digesting them. And a headline comes out uh, which says, uh, new monetary policy. I've been talking to some of the folks and that's all they got. There's going to happen some, some to our money. Did you read the article? No, uh, I didn't have time. Did you read the sports page? Hey, yeah, you know what's, did, did you see what's happening down in California? Uh, see, we're off. Boy, they digested that page. Okay. Now, I want you to digest this for your sake. I want you to become a constitutionalist. And here's what it is. Here's both sides of the issue. Revenue sharing, the real story. What was promised, what the bills contain, and here are those that favor it, and here are those that say it's terribly dangerous. On this page is what the constitutional founding fathers and the church leaders have said on basic constitutional principles that are involved in revenue sharing. Now that's the hottest issue facing America today. About one out of a thousand knows about it. One out of a thousand. We've got to increase that percentage. So I'm not at all reluctant to have a person who's for it or a person against it tell his story. I think you have the intelligence to find your way through without any problem. So with a little help, let me just give you each one of these copies, and each week as it comes out, I'll see that you each get one as long as I can afford it. Now one of the things we try to do in uh, our class is to relate what's in the scriptures to what's happening to us today, and so that's what I'm going to try and do. That's a good suggestion, and I might even bring it a little closer to home. The Ten Commandments put up by the, um, 
the, the Eagles uh, Fraternal Association, on the uh, public park in Salt Lake City has been ordered removed by a federal judge because he says that it confuses the issue of separating church and state. No church was involved in that at all. And the, the Supreme Court has now said there must be a separation of religion and state. Religion and state. And Washington said our whole system is built on religion. Don't ever separate religion from our agencies or we will collapse. Now, you've had your hand up several times. Power to the president to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, but the Constitution didn't mind being changed if you just debate it and think it through. You see, what they're doing is saying, hey, it's for a good cause, go ahead and do it. It's illegal, but go ahead and do it. Uh, go ahead and declare war. Send our troops over uh, abroad. Of course, it hasn't been, we haven't de declared war, so we won't call it a declared war. Just send over a half a million boys. See, we've done that twice now. That's a constitutional procedure. Still couldn't, it might not be all right. We might still find from experience, but at least it go, went through the process. Now, if you do it by judicial fiat or somebody just feeling pressure, you see, founding father says you, you'll be in trouble most of the time. Okay, way in the back. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you. His question was, um, um, if Jefferson wanted to buy the Louisiana Purchase, what, what was the constitutional procedure? so that he could do it. Well, it required an amendment, and that meant that it'd have to be debated and discussed. And some people said, there just isn't time. You know, you, you buy a lot of junk that same way. You know, I got a real bargain for you, but I gotta have it right now, right now. 50% off. Then you get it home and he leaves and you find out the darn thing wasn't worth 25%. But anyway, um, the founding fathers said, if you're going to do something the Constitution doesn't permit, go through the amendment process so that you get a chance to think it through real well before you shift. Now notice how this is set up. Every one of these articles is documented. That's the whole purpose of this. So you won't be quoting the Freeman Report or Brother Scouse, and you'll notice down at the bottom of each article or in the article, it tells you where it came from. This is just so that you'll have in your file what would have taken you several weeks to have accumulated and sifted out of all the papers that are coming through under revenue sharing, pro and con. So that's all been done for you. So don't throw it away. Save it because Aunt Susie one of these days is going to take issue with you on one side or the other. And you say, but Aunt Susie, did you know that? See, and that's, that's what's helpful. Now here was the original proposal which said there would be no strings attached. And that sounded pretty good. A lot of conservative people have said there's duplication in collecting taxes. Um, if the government just collected them and then gave them to the states, maybe that would be economical. So that was sort of the way it was originally presented. And then all of a sudden, when I read the bills and saw what they were going to do to the police, to some of your most sensitive services in the community, under whose control the hiring and firing and policies would be dominated, it's a completely different ball of wax. And all I would care about if the people wanted that, all right, but let's know what we're voting for. That's all this is for. So at least you know what it really says. Now the papers, for some reason or another, have not succeeded in doing a good job of boiling down issues. Therefore, people in Europe know so much more about political issues than, than we do in America. You can talk to a cab driver in London, talk about the most technical aspects of their foreign policy. Boy, he's right with you. And he's been reading it. He's been following it for years, you know. It's very serious, you know. And this, well, it is serious, okay. All right, now. <coughs> Here, here are what the yes people say. They'll say, you'll get some money back. It's your money. You really ought to have some of it back. Oh, that sounds so good. 
And these people over here say, yes, but it, it's the whole, it's an unconstitutional procedure. And number one, you don't have the money. It'll be deficit spending. Number two, this is the, uh, the wrong procedure. Number three, it helps some people and doesn't help others. And who's to decide who's it gonna, it's going to help? And this is what the Constitution was designed to avoid. Somebody sitting up with the whip and saying, we like you, you get it. We don't like you, you don't get it. Why don't you like us? Well, here are the reasons. It turns out that you're not cooperating in this tremendous big centralization of authority. That's why they don't like you. It's a real interesting thing. Now, of course, this was advocated by the socialists all along. So over here on page two, you see down here on this side, you have Kenneth Galbraith, well-known socialist at Harvard, saying, the whole program is so delightful. We're moving in the name of the conservatives. We're moving hard to the left, fast, fast. Just wanted you to hear a socialist say it. There it is. Now on the back page, here's what the founding fathers said to be watching out for. Here's what some of the um, uh, brethren have said. Watch out for certain forces that eventually will destroy our capacity to carry out the church program. And that's all down through here. And uh, here are some constitutional alternatives to revenue sharing. In other words, what else should you do? Okay, it's all wrapped up in one paper for you. Now, it's only one issue. You notice that? Only one issue is dealt with here. One critical issue. Now, next week, you'll get another critical issue, and you'll um, put that in the file, too. And by the time that you have, uh, oh, you've gone through this a couple of months, you'll find yourself pulling this out a dozen times um, because the subject comes up. And if you'll force yourself to read it like the sports page, I want you to notice what happens to your brain. All of a sudden, you stop saying, well, hey, isn't it so-and-so? Or I understood it was such-and-so. I heard a commentator say so-and-so. You don't do that anymore. All of a sudden, you start speaking in specifics. You say, do you know what that bill actually provides? Well, I haven't read the bill. Well, I've read an analysis of it. It's on page three of the Freeman Report. And it says so and so and so and so. And it actually says they will be, have the control over the police. And in fact, if you take that money, which is only 10% of the average budget of a city, and put it in with your general funds, the federal auditors get full control of the whole fund and the policies by which it is expended. It's the neatest little package of of this you ever saw. And it's in there. Okay, read it like a sports page. Digest the scores. You know, you do that all the time. You remember how many errors there were, how many hits, how many runs? Okay. Do it for vital issues. You'll become a great constitutionalist. Let me tell you what our objective is. We're starting a series of constitutional seminars very shortly. They're all on um, cassette tape and um, film strip. So anybody can get 20 friends in their house and present one, but you have homework in connection with it. And you have to send the homework into the Freeman Institute, and after you've taken eight and gone all through the Constitution and how its principles apply to solving our modern-day problems, you get a certificate, which says your brain was at least exposed to what the Founding Fathers were talking about. That's all it certifies to, but it does certify to that, which will be more than one out of every 10,000 have gone through. I'm a political science major, I know. I got clear up in law school before I really understood the Constitution uh, or appreciated it. Then we're going to get competent people to start running for office in all parties as constitutionalists, run as constitutionalists. Now that's the way to save the Constitution while there's still time, while you can still vote. 
become a constitutionist, run for public office, or support somebody else who's running for public office who's a constitutionist. And as Dr. Quigley said in his book, if the middle-class America ever wakes up to what's being done to them, they could upset this beautiful thing that's being built. They could upset it so tremendously. And that's our intent, you see. That's our intent. Because they're gradually pulling in now, and they're saying, we've got to help the poor, give us more power. We've got to help the unemployed, give us more power. We've got to help the students, more power. We've got to help the colleges, more power. We've got to help the labor unions, more power. Well, they all need help. There's a constitutional way to do it so they stay free and get help. And it really doesn't take any longer. But anyway, that's what this fight is all about. And uh, our saints were very dilatory in this. We needed direction mostly. And the church is always so successful in its program, we just wish they could take over. It's too late now. Everything must be done independent of the church. In fact, they're closing in on the church in every way they can. Tried to take away all our radio and television stations in two suits, we just won. St uh, tried to start taxing our property, and fortunately we got by this. What about next time, you see? What about next time? Keep closing in. The they, uh, this is a power establishment that's being, uh, been built up um, uh, over a period of, of, of about 75 to 80 years. I call it the big monopoly. They are bankers, industrial leaders, the world's largest industrial leaders, and their power structure in government, BIG, is the big monopoly. They've got both our political, major political parties now. They have most of our press, radio, television. Um, ABC is the one television network which isn't, is not entirely under their control. And recently I heard someone from CBS talking to a man who, who knew about the conspiracy. And he said, are you trying to tell me that, uh, that the, the various television networks are, are under a supervisory control, a censoring control that slants things and this man pointed to, he said, yes, and yours is the worst. CBS is the very worst. <laughs> and this fellow just kind of rocked back. It was meet the press or face the nation, I guess it was, face the nation. Just rocked him back. He had nothing to say. Because a lot of good people in CBS. But their, their, their reports have been biased for years. Whole books have been written on it now. And it got so bad that Mr. Agnew stepped out into the limelight to point it out to people and immediately became famous. <laughs> right. The liberals say it's not slanted enough. That's right. That's right. Well, actually, this really isn't a contest between liberals and conservatives because I, I would like to be identified with the people that want to help the poor, that want to help the minorities, that want to solve our problems, better streets. See, the church stands for that. The church is a problem-solving institution that wants to conserve our freedom. So we don't divide into conservative and liberal. What we really divide up into is, will you do it the constitutional way or are you going to cut across and do it the collectivist way, which is give us power and we'll compel the stupid masses to do what's good for them. See, that's, that's what Plato said. And that's what Marx said and that's what the socialists say. But what I wanted to get over to you now is that this wonderful society that Enoch was talking about has been re-revealed in our time for the with the possibility of setting it up again. And uh, Lucifer is rapidly dismantling the whole framework of freedom in which you're allowed to do it. He's also dismantling the framework of freedom in which the missionaries can properly function. And uh, he succeeded in doing it in Mexico. And um, we had to, therefore, do it in the name of the Mutual Improvement Association. The government said, well, I guess that's all right. 
So we built colleges and built chapels and ran the whole church program in the name of the Mutual Improvement Association, which we do today. Just had the world's largest Mormon conference, 18,000 people, uh, under the Mutual Improvement Association of Mexico. And uh, seven stakes have been set up under the Mutual Improvement Association. So we wouldn't dare say anything in Mexico about the hardcore revolutionary power that exists in that government or the collectivists that have gained control over many of the people. The thing that the Mexican government is impressed with is the fact we don't take money out of Mexico, we bring it in. And we're teaching the people to read, their homes are cleaner, they make better workmen, they stop getting drunk every Saturday, and it's improving the culture. So they know exactly what we're doing, but wink at it. Because they like what we're doing, they like the fruits. Real interesting. So the church really is being very tightly closed in now. And I'm so uh, appreciative of President Lee. When they give him the most delicate question uh, that, it's, that a, it, one might ask, he turns it around and answers it in a way that gets a whole column of publicity and does a beautiful job of it. For example, the United Press recently asked him, uh, what about the Negro and the priesthood? And he said, well, uh, as far as the church is concerned, it's just a matter of time till the Negro gets the priesthood. He's ingenious on that. That's always been the doctrine. <laughs> They're not forever forbidden from the priesthood. The Lord said that they turned it down in the pre-existence, uh, 13th chapter of Alma, and uh, uh, declined the service. Therefore, they are not allowed to have it here, but they have a chance to go clear to the top of the celestial kingdom if they'll just be valiant here. That's all it's all about. So if you read the article carefully, all of that's in President Lee's statement. And he said, this is completely dependent upon revelation, has nothing to do with us as members of the church. We couldn't possibly change it if we wanted to. It's entirely in the hands of the Lord. Well, what did the headline, what did the headline say? Mormon priesthood for Negroes, merely a matter of time. Well, that's all the liberals have been chanting on. Thank goodness it's merely a matter of time, you see. It never was anything but a matter of time. Well, I think I mentioned to you the other day, didn't I, that when he was in Mexico, they asked him about, um, uh, they asked him about the Vietnam War. Did I mention, tell you about that? They asked him about the Vietnam War. Well, you could, gee, you could get in all kinds of trouble talking about the pros and cons. That's way too complex to answer, you know, in two sentences. So what does he do? He says, let me tell you about war. War is a terrible thing. And in the sight of God, it never should be used to settle political and economic problems. But if a person is attacked and his liberty and his life is at stake, he has a duty to God to defend his wives and his children and his liberty and his basic rights. There's a duty to God to do it. But he said, if you want to know when peace will come to the earth, let me tell you when it's going to come. When the pure love of Jesus Christ enters the hearts of men, they will find that whether they're Arabs or Jews or North Vietnam or South Vietnam, they can live together as brothers and we can achieve universal peace and universal prosperity. And that's what the Mormon church is doing, spreading the pure love of Jesus Christ. And here are these fellows writing. This is just tremendous. That's great. <laughs> Never mentioned the Vietnam War, really. The answer, we talk about war. Every time they ask him about a question, he tells them about the gospel. Now they ask him about abortion. He says, let me tell you about that. 
I saw the, 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 the uh, report in the Los Angeles paper. Three solid columns. No president of the church ever got that kind of write-up. Three solid columns on, on his comments on various issues. So they said, what about abortion? I said, let me tell you about that. The sanctity of life is so precious in the eyes of God and his church that there is never any excuse for destroying life unless another life is in danger, such as the mother. He said, we agree 100% with the Catholic Church on the position that abortion is a sin in the eyes of God. Why? Because of the sanctity of life. I said, there's only one time when it's excused. Well, of course, here's a Catholic nation. Oh, that really went down, down in the paper. Tremendous amount of coverage. On the Mormon position agrees with the Catholic position that in the sight of God, abortions are sin. I got a big write-up. Doesn't matter what they ask him. He tells them about the gospel. The Lord really has blessed him with the capacity to do that. Well, now, I just wanted you to get better acquainted with Enoch and not think of the law of consecration as something that just existed in the past or it, it, it's supposed to be restored before the m millennium. It's going to be restored among the saints either here or if we don't win and there has to be a wiping out of the American civilization or the Gentile civilization and we go back to Missouri when and there's not even a yellow dog to wag its tail, it'll be lived then, but it's going to be lived before the millennium. And nobody's authorized to live it until the prophet of God authorizes it. They tried to do it down at, um, what creek was it down here they tried it? I got Short, creek. Short Creek and a few other places, but it, it never works out successfully and that's because it isn't under proper um, priesthood supervision. Now, at, when, when the, at the height of Enoch's career, the very height of his career, they had this marvelous convention at Adamondiamon, and all of the members of the church went back to Adamondiamon from the city of Enoch, whether it was in the Gulf of Mexico or in the eastern part of the United States, wherever it was, they all went back to Adamondiamon. They met in that magnificent valley that you can visit today, and there, this aged 927-year-old man, it says, bent with age, stood up before them, and these are all his children. And I suppose Mother Eve was there. I hope she was. And uh, he was able to give those who were his direct descendants their particular patriarchal blessing so the patriarchal priesthood could continue. And it was in the midst of that conference, as they were giving their various reports, that there suddenly came through the veil the great Jehovah, who stood there, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Jehovah, stood there, and to the amazement of the people as they saw this glorious being, he pointed to Father Adam and said, there was your leader in the pre-existence in the war in heaven. This man that you call Father and Adam is actually Michael. You knew about Michael. This is he. He led you then, and you supported my proposal rather than Lucifer's. And you are supporting it now, and I bless you for it. And then all of a sudden, Adam's mind was open, and he saw a projection clear down to the end of the millennium. Oh, he rejoiced how in the end, God's great work would prevail. And um, when that conference was finished, Adam survived just three more years. And uh, Seth also died before the city of Enoch was translated. And when the city of Enoch was translated, look who was left. Enos. Canaan, Mahalalel, Methuselah, and Lamech. 
And then two years after the translation of the city of Enoch, little Noah was born. Now Enoch saw Noah and his time in vision. In fact, just before the translation of the city of Enoch, there was this wonderful vision in which Enoch got to see the whole history of the world. And it's interesting how it, uh, it was unfolded to him a little bit at a time. He saw all these multitudes, and I've shown you in your book how they could have been a much bigger population than the earth has today. And he saw them covering and teeming off across the earth, and he looked at the Savior, or Jehovah, and saw him looking at it and weeping. And he looked back. Gee, they're prosperous, beautiful cities, chariots, wonderful. Why are you weeping? You're God. You're in the first presidency of heaven. What's the problem? And he said, you see those? In all my creations, I've never had any as wicked as those. What do you mean, wicked? They look like they're doing so well. Let me show you their personal lives. Enoch couldn't believe it. Perversion, debauchery, animalistic things that even animals wouldn't think of. Well, I turned to God and he said, why, they ought to be wiped off the face of the earth. The debauchery of the earth that they are creating. They ought to be wiped off the earth. And Jehovah said, I sort of had that in mind. <laughs> and then he showed him the great flood. And that really was a source of, uh, of sorrow to, to Enoch. He wiped them all out practically. Just eight people left. And then Enoch said, now what happens? Well, now watch them. They'll go out across the earth. And you'll see it build up again. Then he watched the coming of Christ, Christ's crucifixion. That really was a heartbreak. All this was kind of a surprise to Enoch in a way. All these details had been shown other prophets, but he just couldn't believe it. And then he saw the great apostasy after Christ's time. He saw the Dark Ages. He saw the Renaissance, then the Reformation, then the Restoration, and then the Millennium. And we're probably just, what, 30, 40 years away from it. We're right up against it now. And I'll tell you, Lucifer's pulling all the stops. And he's trying to get you so choked down so that you won't be able to raise your children the way you want to. They will be required to attend schools where they're taught things that you don't want them taught. In fact, they will be taken away from you if he has his way so that you won't even be able to tell them about the gospel. That's his plan. And you happen to have the responsibility to prevent it. It's, it's going to be a real battle. See you Tuesday.